Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, USA. As always, I'm joined by my good friend from across the pond, Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. It is May the 11th, which is roughly the official two-month anniversary here in the States, at least, for the COVID-19 lockdown kind of situation. And uh, I don't know if that, that's probably roughly around the same time as you, Glenn. How are things developing over on your side of the world? Yeah, well, it probably is about eight weeks here as well that we have been furlonged, furlonged from work and lockdown in general. And it was extended for a further three weeks on Sunday here in Northern Ireland. The UK split up into four nations. So England are getting announcements that they're softening the approach They've changed the guidance from stay at home to stay alert, whereas the other three nations are saying stay at home. That would follow the flow and the rise of the virus on its arrival. It came to London first and then moved north. We're probably about two or three weeks behind what's happening in London. But as I look out, the roads are getting busier. People are getting, I don't think it's complacent, but I think they're just going, you know what, I can't stay in all the time now. I need to get out a bit. So there's more risk taken, as you would yeah, expect. People are, have reached their limits. You know, in some ways, it seems like, at least in some parts of the U.S. anyway, it's been a successful effort with staying at home and social distancing. And at least in North Carolina, our statistics have been pretty promising. Mm. Now we have a bunch of people that are going out into the world in ways that they weren't before and stores that are starting to open. And so, yeah, I guess it remains to be seen whether whether this is the right time to do that or if we're making a potentially serious mistake with it all. Mm. I suppose consistent with what very often what we talk about here in the podcast is about realizing that there's an ambivalence that arises and is that we have choices. You know, we've got this opportunity to stay at home and most people have been doing it for six, eight weeks. They're not seeing any difficulties arise in their life, so there's no threat to their own well-being and they're going, well, maybe it should be okay. And they see other people doing it and then there's that momentum developing. Well, if they're doing it, I'm going to do it. And and now it's a case of we have to hope that figures don't change. Time will tell and, and we'll, I suppose we will adapt accordingly. And one interesting thing, interesting thing about behavior change here for us anyway, and, and I imagine for you all as well, is wearing masks has become a much more common sight and, and, and certainly a new behavior for a lot of people. And I know for me, I'm not used to wearing masks when I'm out in public. But for many, many years, you would see pictures of Asian countries well before the pandemic. Mm. And it seemed maybe not across the board, but it wasn't uncommon certainly yeah. to see that. And maybe having some public health strategies like that, where it's relatively harmless and not very challenging and difficult to adopt that kind of behavior change, maybe that's also what's contributing to people's comfort mm. in entering the world. and in ways that we haven't in two months. Yeah, 
And interesting about that, just even with these countries, my understanding is I used to think it was they were protecting themselves from us. But given the nature of, and the, the values of particularly the likes of Japan, where I understand that they wore masks if they were unwell to protect everyone else. And it's that idea that the reason why you and I should wear masks is not to protect us from them, it's to protect everybody else from us. I suppose it could fit with the spirit of what it is we talk about in Motivation to and it's about thinking about others, that unconditional positive regard, that what impact am I having on other people and what can I do to ensure that their experience of me is positive. And it might be that discomfort of wearing a mask, but to do it for the well-being of other people. And certainly compassion too, actions towards the benefit and health of others. Yeah. Okay, well, we have an episode here. Yeah. So before we uh, we welcome and introduce our, our next guests, tell us about social media platforms and ways to rate and review us. Thank you to everybody who's now following us on Twitter at Change Talking. We also have a Facebook page at Talking to Change. Our Instagram is Talking to Change Podcast. And for direct contact with myself or Seb, it's podcast at glenhines.com. Okay, well, let's move on to our guest. We are quite thrilled to have a good friend of ours and colleague, part of the, the Mint Network, the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers on. So we're welcoming Peter Reeves to the podcast today. Hello, Peter. Get us started with a bit of background and tell us a bit about who you are. Sure. Hey, Seb and Glenn, it's awesome to be on the, the podcast. I've really enjoyed it. Listen to every episode, I believe, and I just think you're doing a great job. I can't believe that uh, I get to be a, a guest. I'm excited to be a part of it. I went to school and studied psychology at Wake Forest University, which is where I now work. But it's been sort of a circuitous route to get back to that university. I, I studied psychology wasn't quite sure what I wanted to be when I grew up. I think that's typical for that developmental stage. But I knew that I liked school, really liked psychology. So I went from my undergraduate work at Wake Forest to a PhD program in social psychology. And that was at the University of Delaware. There I studied social behavior and did a lot of uh, work in a research lab. I very much enjoyed it. And one summer had an opportunity to take a part-time job for a little extra cash working in a one-on-one uh, -on -one behavioral support position with kids in a community who were experiencing behavioral challenges of, of one sort or another. And I absolutely fell in love. And I sort of reevaluated my, my direction. And although I loved my research trajectory, I found a passion in working with individuals in a more more sort of direct way and decided to follow that. So around 2000, 2001, I embarked on what ended up being around a 16-year career in public behavioral health, working with people who had needs related to substance use, uh, mental illness, intellectual and developmental disabilities, primarily around helping get them connected to services they needed to be supported in the community. It started as a direct service role and grew more into systems management, uh, managed care, some training, helping to shape some policy. And so it went really from a micro focus to, to more of a macro focus. Five years ago, I decided to do a little less traveling with my work and stick closer to home. And so 
one day I sat at my computer and I Googled motivational interviewing jobs, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and up popped my alma mater and a job within the Office of Wellbeing. And there was a lot about that that appealed to me. Number one, they knew what motivational interviewing was and valued it enough to put it in an ad. And at that point, I developed quite a passion and interest around motivational interviewing. Also, I, I didn't know what an office of well-being did, but it sounded really good to me. And it was at a place, Wake Forest University, where I had attended as an undergrad. And so in many ways, it, it felt like home to me and ended up only being two miles from my home. So lots of happy synergy there in that discovery. It was made for you? It felt that way. And the role was was an interesting one to me. In addition to sort of a general focus on developing well-being within the university context, it was really focused on supporting students in making healthier decisions, in other words, harm reduction, related to alcohol and other drugs. So it was in an area with which I was familiar, but a little bit of a different target population than the public behavioral health work that I had done previously. So there's enough there to entice you to almost like to stretch your development was part of your own ongoing journey. There was something familiar about it, but something very new and exciting about it as well. And it sounds like from what you're saying is that your journey into psychology took you to a place where in some ways you were, it was like you were exploring the patterns of people's behavior. But when you met the people, that's what lit you up. You thought, yeah, I want to work directly with them. And then over time, it went out then to not necessarily back out as far as the patterns, but the mechanics of how to influence groups of people and organizations. And here you are again, working within that realm, working with individuals, but also within the systems. So you mentioned your relationship with Motivation Division and the opportunity that came up in Wake Forest to practice and use it. Well, how did you discover MI and what was it about it that attracted you so much? Along that journey and those 16 years of, of working in, in public behavioral health, I was doing a lot of work and most of my tasks were based in this idea of, of general behavior change, helping folks that were experiencing challenges in their life and helping connect them to resources and, and helping to support them and accessing the resources available to them to get to where they wanted to get, which is a, a theme that we're really familiar with in motivational interviewing. At some point in my career, and I can't tell you exactly when it was or where I was working, one of my employers sent me to a motivational interviewing training. And that's all I remember about it. I remember that I went to a training and for whatever reason, it didn't stick with me. It didn't become part of my, my everyday or, or my consciousness. Fast forward towards the end of that period, I was working with this amazing organization based here in North Carolina in the States that's called Community Care of North Carolina. If you're not familiar, I really suggest the listeners check it out as a, as a model of sort of managed care in a public health setting. My role there was integrating the behavioral health care for individuals into the physical health, public health realm. And this particular program, and you can learn more about them at communitycarenc.org, they were able to reduce the state Medicaid budget to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars each year 
by using a really intelligent strategic initiative that combined smart use of data, so knowing who needed help with a very human and personal style of support. And that's where motivational interviewing came in. So every single individual who worked for Community Care of North Carolina, part of the onboarding process was they went through a two-day motivational interviewing training. And then there were ongoing skills refresher and development workshops that happened back at our local network. So there's a state organization and local networks. And each local network had what they called a motivational interviewing champion. So initially I was a trainee and then, you know, in doing my work, there was a lot of exposure to it and it seemed really interesting to me. And at some point, the person who was the motivational interviewing champion within my network was moving on to a different role. And I immediately raised my hand and said, I want to learn more about this. And so I got to explore more training and take on a leadership role, which really created some ownership for me around it. And I found a passion in it. And so I explored development as a practitioner, but also as a trainer, so I could help the employees within the network really develop their skill set. You mentioned Medicaid, which for people that are unfamiliar with the U.S. system, Medicaid is like the public insurance, maybe similar to the NHS system. Not exactly, of course, but similar, at least, or a way to think about it. And so you had this experience of being a part of a system or an agency that had a great deal of success with healthcare delivery at a improved cost, I suppose, but also providing really good quality care. Also, another example from your story about both the, the kind of micro parts of your work as well as the macro parts of it, both working with people and training people, but also taking having a, an eye towards a larger system like a region in North Carolina or perhaps a whole entire state's health outcomes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and just as, as Glenn noted earlier, and, and you've continued to pick up on, that's really been a theme in my work. I really find that I have a passion around the individual relationships and, and supporting individuals. And my work as an MI practitioner really helps me in, in doing that work. Throughout my career, I've also really love the work that's taking a step back and thinking about how can we as a system or we as an organization work better, work smarter, work more effectively for people. And typically that involves program development, program evaluation, policy work, you know, that sort of macro lens. And so that's a lot of what I do now at Wake Forest, again, with a different population. But my work there around substance use is really divided into three categories. One is prevention and education work. So that's developing programs to help educate primarily college students about what makes danger, drinking dangerous. So what, what does dangerous drinking look like? What is dangerous about drug use and um, how can you be safe? The second tier of my work there is much more of this sort of individual support area, and that's doing intervention work and individual work around behavior change for people who have run into trouble with drugs or alcohol. And that could be trouble with the conduct system. It could be medical trouble. You know, they had to go to the hospital for overuse of alcohol or drugs. Or they say, hey, you know what, I've got some problems with this and I'd really like some help. And then the third tier is during my time there at Wake Forest, we've developed what's called a collegiate recovery community. And so 
that's a, an identity group on campus for students who identify as being in long-term recovery from addiction. And so we provide sort of a home within the university context to help provide peer support and you know, organizational support to students who identify that way. So you're covering the whole spectrum of the potential journey that an individual may be on, what might bring them into relationship or difficult relationships with alcohol. When they do, how can they get support for themselves? If it becomes more complex, how can they get support from each other rather than always having to turn inverted commas to professionals? Quite a comprehensive approach to this. And in what ways then does motivational interviewing inform how you do that and how does it, where do you use it along that continuum? The main place, the most obvious um, link there is in that second tier, the the intervention phase. So we use a model that's called BASICS, which is an acronym. It stands for Brief Alcohol Screening and Intervention for College Students. So it's specifically designed for this university population. And actually, Bill Miller had a big part to play in the development of this particular model. And for decades now, it's proven to be, you know, an evidence-based practice in supporting behavior change around alcohol and drug use in the university setting. And it leans heavily on the use of motivational interviewing in brief sessions where students will complete an assessment, a battery of survey tools, they'll receive a feedback report from that set of tools, and then they'll sit down with someone who's trained in MI and have a conversation about, you know, how's this working for you, not working for you? What would you like to change and and how would you like to change it? Which all should sound familiar to the folks in your audience that are familiar with motivational interviewing. That's sort of the primary way that motivational interviewing is used on a daily basis in my work. Description reminds me a lot of the episode that we did with Denise Walker not too long ago, where her, well, the whole episode is about use of feedback and and how to provide feedback in a strategic way, in a empathic way to help guide discussions around change. So maybe a little plug for, for that episode as well. One of the things that in our conversations leading up to this, Pete, is you've shared quite a lot about your view about how well MI fits, not just in the world of supporting college students who might have gotten into some trouble around drugs and alcohol, but just across a university campus when conversations occur with older adolescents and young adults that that MI is just a natural fit for any number of professionals. You could speak to that a bit. That's exactly right. When I arrived at Wake Forest, one of the first things that I did as an employee, I work within an operational unit called the Division of Campus Life, which is all the sort of non-academic student affairs support programs that you can imagine might take place at a university, um, especially a residential university. So everything from student health to university police, the counseling center, residence life and housing, there's just a a huge broad and and deep swath of, of professionals providing a bunch of different support roles that are about supporting the development of these students that they're there to learn and develop academically, but also as people and to keep them safe, to help them develop. So one of my first activities when I got to Wake Forest was I did a presentation about motivational interviewing for the leadership of the Division of Campus Life. 
part of the case that I made was, while it is good that I have this skill set so that I can deliver this very specific targeted intervention service that is needed on campus to help students make behavior change, this skill set is also relevant to anyone on campus that is working in, in a capacity that may serve to support a student and especially a student at this sort of critical age, 18 to 25 is our typical college or university student age. And that was really well received. And so I've also developed a training program at Wake Forest and offer trainings to individuals within the campus community. And frequently my trainings include students graduate students, professional students, such as law students or medical students, faculty who are actually teaching courses, and support staff and administrators, such as those people within my division. So that's been a really fun initiative to help people develop a skill set in supporting these young adults, late adolescent young adults, in exploring all the change that naturally happens at that period of life, but supporting them in a, in a really helpful and supportive way that's based in evidence. So that's so much of what you're describing is about the culture of caring within the college environment, that all of these individuals, even as I was listening to you describe that, it's almost like the village behind supporting these kids get on with learning their studies, that all of these support staff, who I guess in many ways are primarily driven by a desire to make the environment conducive to these kids' growth and when they heard of motivation to view and, and the effectiveness of it, that they saw and identified the potential of that to help themselves to be as supportive as it could be. And as a consequence of that, the, the layers of people you were describing and the width of that as well as, again, it's back to that culture that you've created and that, that has been maintained and developed has must be very conducive. And if we think of the spirit, I imagine then it's a, there's a lot of, compassionate thinking and compassionate interactions, not just with students, but I imagine with the, with each other, with, with colleagues and faculty staff and management and leadership. I think that's absolutely right. I, I hadn't really thought much about sort of the inherent connection to MI spirit and taking on a career in student affairs, but I think there's something there. I think you've tapped into something. I was thinking about this episode and how ironic it is that we're talking about motivational interviewing, which sometimes downplays the offering of, of information, right? There's some subtlety to it. So we, we don't discount giving information, but we, we're careful about how we do it, right? But what are universities? They're institutions built on bestowing information and knowledge on people. And the irony is not, not lost on me. But I do think that you're right, that the people that find themselves working in these roles like healthcare workers, are, are really compassionate and engaged, really invested in supporting these young adults and continuing that exploration of who am I, what's important to me, and where am I headed? And a lot of that development work happens during that time that people are away at university. In keeping with that thought about universities being institutions that bestow information and and not just information about English literature or something, but in information about what people are supposed to do in terms of job seeking and what people are supposed to do in terms of managing their relationships or dealing with their parents or whatever it might be. So what, what has been your experience, or I guess what is 
the people that you've you've shared MI with or, or taught MI to on the in the campus community that you're in, what's been their reaction and their feedback to you, and, and how have they managed to adopt something that might have been quite different since so much of their roles before had been to tell young people how to go about life and how to live their life. So in addition to the trainings, one of the things that we do is anybody who's been through one of the trainings that we offer at Wake Forest is invited to come to a monthly informal drop-in skills development and maintenance session. We just call it our brown bag lunch. You know, So you bring your lunch and I'll have a, an activity around MI skill development ready. But usually we sit around a table and talk about what was your experience with in using MI, how, how does it feel? And for those who are newer to MI in the university setting, I don't think this is unique to the university setting. Frequently, the stories that I get back are, how do I get them to know this? How do I get them to do this? How do I get them to... And I think what we know from MI is that we're more successful when we're supporting someone in hearing what it is that they want from themselves and shining a light on that through skillful use of reflections, through exploring with, with curious questions, and through cultivating true engagement through you know, that being part of the motivational interviewing spirit. When we're able to connect and, and reflect together in the bigger trainings and in these sessions, I frequently hear this sigh of relief that, oh, it's not my responsibility to get someone to do something. In other words, to coerce them or, or redirect them towards this other behavior. It seems to be something that feels really good to people and fits with that sort of inherent desire to care for and support that you tapped into earlier. As often as said, and when we speak to guests on the podcast, and certainly my own experience in NoSebs as well, is that the, the motivation interviewing offers us an opportunity to be much more consistent with, with our own values that were well established before we were introduced to MI. But again, the motivation interviewing articulates it in a, in a way that's allows us to move forward. And again, that relief that you describe where people feel they can unburden themselves of feeling responsible for other people's decisions and other people's behavior. It's wonderful that you've created that training environment that then, I suppose, consistent with the, even the spirit of MI, which is you, you're not saying you have to come to this, but it's here if you want it. And people have a choice to come along. And, and it's a re I guess it's a reflection on what it is you're offering, that people continue to do that, Peter, that there's something that is nourishing them each time they come back. And it's that being washed over and over and over again with this gentle insight to human behavior and human psychology and relationship, why people change in certain relationships and not in others. And the shift that's taken place then in the practitioner's mind and the practitioner's skill set allows them to go out and try it. And I guess the reason why they're coming back is because they're already seeing it making a difference and that's what's appealing to them. I think that's right. And, you know, one of the things that I see frequently with university students is, and I think this is frustrating for these professionals that are in it to help, is there's a bit of a natural divide between students and the administration 
I don't know about you, but when I look back on my time as a 18 to 25 year old, there was sort of a, a natural mistrust of the adults who had authority over me and a suspicion. What is it that you're trying to do? I jokingly say my unofficial title is Captain Buzzkill because the perception of the students is I'm there to ruin the fun and, and ruin their parties and prevent them from having fun. But when I'm able to connect individually with a student and really explore what are their values, what are their priorities, what are their goals, what are my priorities, what are my goals, they're the same. So that's a big part of what we're teaching. It reminds me of uh, Bill Miller's sort of plenary talk at the Tallinn Mint Forum when he said, doobie doobie doo is what MI is, you know? And it's about that being part. I do teach people how to do MI and the skills and, and what is the spirit and, and that. But the spirit is about how to be with someone. And I think that can be a really powerful vehicle when you're talking about adults who are well past the typical university student age and then university students who are in their late adolescence and maybe emerging adulthood and have some of that mistrust. When you really connect with them on a human level in a way that motivational interviewing allows us to do, it opens up a really human connection that then serves as fertile ground for a whole lot of behavior change work. And I imagine that there must be some real intentional to go along with the first process in MI engaging. There's some really intentional work that you're doing early on, almost assuming, maybe that's not the case for everyone, but almost assuming that the young person that you are meeting for the first time has some suspicion about what your motives are and to spend however much time it might take to, to really get to know the other person, to be curious about their life, but also to, I guess, exude or demonstrate that being part that you're striving for is really critical. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about, you know, how you go about doing that, whether it's if you could describe the, the way of being and maybe even certain things that you find yourself saying kind of frequently, knowing, of course, that this isn't going to be just a list of catchphrases that you use without the genuine part of you coming forward also, you know, but talk a little bit more about that engagement process with the young people. Let me start with a little anecdote that actually came up today in our brand bag meeting with the MI trainees. And then I'll, I'll sort of describe some of that. And one of the things I love about this is that we know from research that your effectiveness in motivational interviewing is actually unrelated to degree. So this isn't something that's only accessible to clinicians. This is something that people can learn and, and people can be effective with. And so I can teach a university police officer who has no clinical training at all how to deliver MI with fidelity and apply that to their role. So that's a really great thing about it. But this anecdote that came up today that I think is relevant to your question Seb is there was a woman who was on on the meeting and she said, you know, I've connected with this young man and we, it's strange how we got connected, but we've formed a bit of a bond and I've, I've really used my learning from MI Spirit to do that engagement piece. In other words, you know, really meeting him with compassion, acceptance, partnership, and in our conversations, being curious and seeking to evoke from him his thoughts, his feelings, his hopes, his goals, his motivations. And she said, this young man is in a situation wherein 
he's sort of off cycle, actually related to the COVID-19 pandemic with a number of his other peers. There's a, there's a small cohort that was studying abroad. They've now come back to the States. And so there are several months, I believe, behind the rest of their cohort. But everyone else on campus who was left or was who was studying virtually is finishing for the semester. And so they're feeling very disconnected and they're feeling a real loss of structure and any sort of routine that I think a lot of us are experiencing during this pandemic that's leaving him feeling directionless and disorganized. And so he's staying up late at night and sleeping during the day and, and really just sort of struggling. And she asked him, she said, are you the only one in your cohort that's feeling this way? And there, I guess there are about 20, 25 of them, I'm not sure. And he said, no, no, I think a lot of other people are feeling that way. And she said, well, you know, have you brought that up with the faculty members who are overseeing your program? And he said, no way. I'm afraid that that might reflect poorly upon me as a student. And I'm not, I don't feel comfortable doing that. So there's something in that power dynamic between the student and the faculty member. And the faculty member has this ability to assign a grade and in some small way control outcomes for the student that has sort of eliminated the potential for partnership, absent maybe some other work that we could do. But with this staff person who is a trainee, she had that connection with him. She was able to do that engagement work and really get to a place with him where they were well connected despite their age difference and, and difference in life stages. He felt really comfortable not only confiding in her these struggles that she was having, he was having, but also asking for her assistance in sort of solving some of these issues. And so that's part of what I'm hoping to get at in sowing the seeds of MI in a broad sense throughout the university community, creating a, a culture of engagement so that when whatever decision or, or challenge a student might be wrestling with, when they, when they approach a professional on campus, that professional has the skill set to be able to engage with them in a meaningful way, cultivate that trust, and then, you know, has the skills to support that person and sort of exploring what change they might like to see in their life. Sounds like you're describing that the first person that has to move to help these young people change is the practitioner to move their attitude, to move their ideas, to move their sense of responsibility that these young people are coming along and there's an intrinsic or an, an instinctive distrust of adults for whatever reason. You have just identified that young people will trust adults under certain circumstances and they know who they can trust by the way the adult behaves. And it sounds like that's the invitation to the people you're working with. You can get on with doing what you're doing and it'll continue to look like this. Now, if that's the way you want it to be, knock yourself out. But if this isn't satisfying you, there are certain things that you can consider thinking doing differently, which is, first of all, understand these are kids between 18 and 25. They're still in a developmental process. They're here to learn, but they're also here to party. They're away from home and they're doing all of these things. And their age and stage is different from ours, but they want relationship. They want guidance under the right circumstances. They're keen to learn. They're university students. They want to grow. But it's not just academically, they're here to learn about life too. And sometimes they need to lean on someone. 
I think that's right. I think you're, you hit something right on the head, Glenn, and something that we really work to include in our prevention and education work too, and that's a sense of authenticity. In MI, we talk about accurate empathy, which requires compassion and, and this curious mindset and really working to get into the mind of the person that's sitting across from us to the degree possible. And so I think university students at that age group really value authenticity. And some of that distrust comes when they sense that, the, that someone's being inauthentic or playing a role. You know, that's, that's a place where I spend a, a good bit of energy when I meet someone for the first time, when a student comes to my office. And frequently when a student comes to my office, they're, they're being required to do so by a dean or, you know, someone in a conduct office that said, you know, you've broken some rules, so go see Peter. So in some ways, I'm starting already in a bit of a hole with regard to building engagement. They don't want to be there. I work very hard to ensure that I'm embodying that spirit of MI. And the first thing that I do is I seek to set the groundwork and set the ground rules for someone. And we talk about setting the agenda so that there are no surprises. This is my role. I'd like to tell you a little bit about what's gonna happen here, what we're gonna do with our time. I'll tell you a little bit about the rules with regard to privacy and confidentiality and that sort of thing, and, and assure you that this is a private space and what you tell me is between you and me, and, and I really do honor that. And then the rest of the time, I'd really like to get to know you and, and find out you know, what's going on with you and what's important to you and who you are. And spending that time to really set the agenda and, and help them to understand what's happening here goes a long way to relieving some of that anxiety that they walk in the room with. But then using my MI skill set to meet them where they are, to be their partner, and not try to put my agenda on them, but find out from them what is it that they hope for and how can we get there. So a mixture of things that you're doing and not doing. There's a genuine level of authenticity, certainly, but communicated first and foremost with transparency and being very clear about the role that you have, what the conversation is going to be about, perhaps at times even acknowledging that they may not want to be there or they're being forced to walk, go in and talk to you and, and maybe making a nod to that reality. Just really focusing the conversation on who this person is, perhaps over and above what they did or how they got into trouble. And then the thing that you're not doing is you're not lecturing, you're not scolding, you're not threatening, you're not doing any of that sort of work. Although I imagine you do, you might at times provide some information about what might happen if they found themselves in a similar situation, but not in a, in a threatening or, or kind of controlling sort of way. And using a technique like elicit, provide elicit to, to find out if they want that information. Uh, would that be helpful for you? For a lot of students, they're not interested in reducing their drinking. They're not interested in, in reducing the frequency with which they party or the intensity with which they party. So maybe our shared goal is not getting in trouble, which might require some behavior change that does align with some harm reduction as well. It's about meeting them where they are because the alternative is nobody gets anywhere. So again, it's that willingness to shift the focus to where the client is willing to talk. So rather than talking about their drinking, you're exploring, well, 
what ideas have you got about how to not get into trouble or not get caught? Because it sounds if you're on a, to use a soccer terminology, you're on a yellow card here. If you're caught again, then potentially your university career is going to be hindered or arrested. And even just exploring that with them, just what would that mean to you? Rather than going, you can't afford to do that. Again, that's that aspect of ourselves and motivational interviewing we describe as writing reflexes. We go, look, if you get caught again, you're going to get thrown out of college and you don't want that because your life's going to fall apart. There's none of that. It's just a case of going, you know, you've got caught. What does that mean to you? What do you understand is going to happen? Here's some information if it's helpful. If you don't understand the processes within university, what do you think about that? If you get caught again, the likelihood is that you might have to take a year out. What does that mean to you? And the idea is just to give them the space to make a decision for themselves, which is, again, we spoke to Professor Ryan and the emphasis was on autonomy. You may have a desire and an idea of what could be best for this young person, but you're supporting their right to choose whatever path they feel for themselves, even if you disagree with those choices. That's exactly right, Glenn. And it's so refreshing for these for these young people in the office because that's the opposite of what they expect. They walk in expecting to be punished, expecting to be lectured. And when they don't get that, you can almost many times visibly see them exhale in relief. And I think there's another component to it. I think about Gene Twenge's work around, you know, the iGen and this hyper-connected digital native environment that we're working in, that we're living in, and especially these students, and I walk around campus and, and everybody's got their head down in a device, and communication is so rarely sitting down face-to-face -face and engaging with someone at a level of depth beyond when you going out, what'd you do last night, you know, that sort of thing. And so I think there's another piece to this, and that is that people are craving that authentic human connection, that these type of conversations, these skillful communications rooted in empathy, rooted in compassion afford us. And they didn't even know they wanted it so badly, but frequently we get students coming back voluntarily. I have a wonderful staff person who, who works with me named Holly, Holly Heath. And I remember so clearly, we send out surveys to our students to ask how, what their experience was, and there's an open-ended period. One of the comments that we got back was, I left that session feeling better about myself than I have in months. Let's put that in context. This is a 18, 19, 20-year-old who got in trouble, had to go to the dean, was sanctioned by the conduct process in a hearing to go meet with Holly in a closed room, probably had other things they'd rather be doing. Sleeping might be at the top of the list. And came out of there saying, I felt better about myself than I had in months. I, I just, I love the power that, you know, having an authentic and engaged conversation with someone can have. And you could see how that experience would branch out into so many other parts of this young person's life where there's a conversation about them getting into trouble with drugs or alcohol, maybe both, and they leave feeling better about themselves than they have in months to then go forward and face their four or five challenging courses and maybe a relationship challenge or a friend group that they're wanting to uh, be active with or, or maybe even some extracurricular activity that's been challenging. I mean, 
you could just see how that conversation would have such ripples throughout a young person's life beyond just the presenting problem. Sure. And now imagine that their sociology professor that they're where they're struggling to maintain their grade in that course is also trained in motivational interviewing. That young person goes in to talk to that professor about, you know, I'm not sure if this is the right major for me. And I, I'm thinking about changing my course of study. How is that conversation different with that professor who's trained in MI in a supportive way to have that conversation about what are your goals? How do you want to get there? Versus someone who's like, oh, no, you just need to work harder or whatever that writing reflex type of conversation may be. And similarly, you can apply that to they go to student health for you know some, some sort of health issue. I know you've had an episode about MI and healthcare and how important those the nature of those conversations can be or a university police officer, like we said, or they're having a conflict with their roommate and that staff and residence life and housing, you know, how do you have that conversation in a way that helps that student to explore what's important to me and what do I really hope to get out of this decision point that I find myself at? So you're clearly very passionate about the well-being, not just of these young people, but also how to support and create an environment where the adults in that environment feel more purposeful in their relationships with these service users, the students. And what strikes me as I listen to you is, while it may be very clear in the short term, you know, that kid left and, you know, just how how significant that was is clear in the way you were describing it, that that 40-minute, 50-minute conversation can change a young person's experience and turn it 180 degrees. But my guess is that, that left an imprint on that young person that will last forever. That was a positive help and experience, which proves, first of all, that there are adults out there who get it. There are adults out there who can listen. And in some ways, it opens the possibility that that young person themselves can then take that experience with them into their own adulthood. And that just, that trickle effect of the more people who begin to think Probably in what really is a more natural human way of relating that perhaps we've forgotten, but that willingness to be with other people because it helps them and that makes us bigger by helping other people. And that sounds really exciting about the those steps that you're taking with people close to you and around you about how to change that. And I'm just wondering what thoughts you have about what, what, how do you see that developing? What, what's your plans? What are your ideas about how to maintain that? And how do you reach that sociology professor? And how do you create an environment where they would want to engage in that learning process for themselves and become students almost? That's a great question. I shared with you the, the infrastructure around supporting students outside of just the academic realm at Wake Forest, just for context, for those who aren't familiar, is a, a fairly small university. We have 5,000 students in undergraduate, which is, is a pretty small school. And yet we have 250 professionals employed within that division of campus life. And that's not even including all the graduate assistants and student employees that really make that that machine go and support that work. And then Seb knows this, we, we talked about, there's a professional organization for student affairs administrators called NASPA. And that group has 15,000 members 
and 1,500 member institutions. So that just gives you a, a sense of sort of the, the size and reach and scope across the U.S. And then there's, you know, universities and colleges all over the world. And so I think that this has proven helpful for us. I know there are some other schools, University of Michigan is an example. Um, Mary Jo Despero has got a great program there using motivational interviewing in their programming. And I think there's a lot of potential for schools to create formal motivational interviewing training programs that's not necessarily aimed at the clinical intervention, but more around creating that culture of being with a student and then doing the supporting in a skillful way, in a way that aligns with an evidence base and an evidence base that feels great. That's the best thing about motivational interviewing. It's like a warm hug that has a p-value of less than 0.05. It's so good. It, and it can really appeal to, to people who are really, you know, sort of research focused and, and then other people who are more, you know, heart and feeling focused. Within our university, um, we're going to keep on doing this. I am averaging, you know, around four introductory trainings a year at Wake Forest, and that gives people access to the concepts of MI spirit and the skills ores and, and processes and, and sort of the introductory concepts within motivational interviewing. And then again, they have then the ability to tap in on a monthly basis I shared earlier, our, we have diverse groups that take us up on those trainings. It's students and, and faculty and staff alike. And so each of those individuals, I hope, will serve as an ambassador that goes out into the university community and says, hey, I did this thing and this is how that felt. And it's really helped me. Because like you said, it's, it's also about reducing frustration in that helping professional or that professor who may have an expertise in biochemistry, but less so in... How do I support this student who's crying in my office about the poor grades that they have or the, the stress of juggling this, this new adult life that they've inherited? I just have a lot of hope for it that it'll continue to grow and be seen as, a, as sort of an integral tool for student affairs professionals that really look to support students in a meaningful way. I feel like we're circling back to a theme from earlier in the conversation, this this micro to macro journey, I suppose, that you, you keep finding yourself on and, and these trainings, these small group trainings that you see kind of growing and branching out to, uh, to other parts of the university community create this culture, this really compassionate culture. I also have to say, Pete, I think that that definition of MI is perhaps the best one, certainly the most creative one. What was it? A warm hug with a p-value of less than 0.05? That's, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> I think that's what I said. No, that's great. Thank you. So um, in the interest of time, keep an eye on the clock here. Just, you know, as we start getting to the end, we always like to ask our guests if there's something that, they're, that they've been working on or that they see off in the horizon. Could be MI related, maybe not. Knowing you the way we do, there's plenty on your horizon that's not MI related. So just want you uh, to invite you to, to share a bit what you see coming up for you in these next uh, in this next little while. I'm very excited about the the Instagram account for this podcast. For those who haven't followed Talking to Change podcast on Instagram, it is exceptional. And Glenn, I believe it's your daughter who's doing a lot of the work around that. Is that right? My daughter Maeve, she's leading it all. 
not only is it helpful and inspiring to me personally, but it's also, you know, something that we're looking at as an office of well-being because the, the content is just fantastic and it's just been great. So just to shout out, that's Talking to Change podcast on Instagram. You know, one of the things that, this isn't new, um, but one of the things that's really been exciting to me probably over the last year, year and a half in motivational interviewing is really getting more familiar um, with affirmations and really doing some some deep digging into that specific micro skill within ORS. And I, I really want to credit the episode, I think it was episode four when you had Steve Rolnick on and he was talking about wearing spectacles, you know, and you, we, we sort of naturally go through assisted by uh, reality TV and the evening news with these sort of problem lenses on looking for problems everywhere and we can see them very clearly but he challenged us to put on this other set of lenses that looks for strengths and when you see those strengths you call it out right and that's an affirmation pretty simple concept but we need to develop that muscle like so much in mi it's a concept that's very reachable it's something that we're familiar with but you really got to develop that muscle of getting used to naming those strengths when you see them and that's an affirmation so then um, our good friend Mallory DeSalle does this wonderful project where she creates this deck of laughermation cards, tapping into her joy and laughter and magnetic smile. And I love using these laughermation cards, which are really just a deck of cards that, that you can order. And I use them in trainings and people can pick up a, an affirmation card and secretly or very openly hand it to someone else and, and say, you know, you asked a great question today or what, whatever it may be and offer an affirmation. Next step in this sort of re-exploring affirmations for me, I went to a pre-forum led by David Rosengren and Scott Caldwell, two amazing trainers. It was really great. And the focus was on developing as a trainer and really exploring adult learning theory and designing trainings that were more effective for our trainees. One of the things that they really highlighted was this concept of elaboration. So that's building on what we already know. And that really aligns with the process of evoking, right? Of evocation and, and the, the MI spirit concept of evoking. They started our training on training with this exercise where we focused on sort of our strengths as trainees. So we were asked to talk to each other very briefly and then introduce our partner with a strength that you heard from them. And it was really neat to start the training with this affirmation from a stranger and this focus on positive emotion and which really helps with engagement, right? Another part of the process. And then it also enabled us to circle back to the skill of affirming. Look how easy that was. You just met this person, you spoke to them very, very briefly, and you were able to generate an affirmation. And how did that feel? And so Seb and I then co-trained together, which was a wonderful experience. I learned so much co-training with Seb. And we tried that. So we had our attendees speak briefly with each other. Most of them had never met each other before. I think we gave them about 30 seconds to speak with each other. And without telling them what we we're gonna ask them to do, we said, now 
we'd like you to just talk for 30 seconds and share what you like about your job and a hobby that you have. So that was all the guidance we gave. And then we asked them to introduce their partner by their first name and a strength that you heard. We didn't ask them to discuss strengths, but they have to go in there and find it in, in what they heard. And I feel like the feedback that we got from that was really, really positive. And Seb and I were able to model it for them, sort of to ease them into it. And it, even though we were modeling it and we knew what we were doing, it felt really good to hear the nice things that Seb had to say about me. You know, and all of our learners started our training with these giant smiles on their face, feeling positive and feeling affirmed and sort of waking up and to the process. I think that it's applicable in training, but I, I just don't think that the power of affirmations can be overstated. And we know that they need to be genuine and it's something beyond a, a compliment. It's really more about a strength. It's not, I like your shoes, but like the example that Steve Rolnick gave in episode four, um, you're a dignified person. And we heard about the life change that, that generated for that person. But I was thinking about this concept of affirmation and how if we wear those lenses and, and they pop up, those strengths pop up, we name them. And there's power in that, right? But I think that skillfully, we can also go looking for them. And if I may, I'd just give a quick example with a student. I think it'll sort of bring us, bring us full circle. I had a young woman in my, in my office and she came through the conduct process and was not happy to be there. And through our conversation, it came out that her challenges included fairly regular cocaine use. She was a, a daily binge drinker and used cannabis nightly to help her fall asleep. You know, I didn't tell her it doesn't work that way, but, you know. So as we were talking through it, I used one of our skills that we have in MI, which is um, scaling, which I love. And I asked her, if you were going to make a decision, well, first I asked her, I identify a target behavior. I said, you know, if you're going to make a change in one of those substances, which one, which one do you think you might make a change in? And she said, cocaine. I don't need it. I don't want it. I need to stop that. It's not something I want to do anymore. So I said, so you're really motivated to change. So on a, on a scale of one to 10, with one being not at all motivated, 10 being very motivated, how motivated are you to do this? And she said, you know, I'm pretty motivated. I'm like a seven. So oh, that's really good. You're, you're really feeling like this is an important thing to change. Now, in terms of confidence on the same scale with one being not at all confident, 10 being, you know, it's, as good as done, you know, definitely going to change this. How confident do you feel that you can make this change? And she said, I'm like an eight or a nine. I said, wow, that's really confident. So tell me, what is it about you that makes you so confident that you can make that change and you're going to be successful with it? So I'm sort of trying to find out what is it in you? What is that trait about you? Sort of digging for the affirmation. And she said, well, I'll tell you. I'm the type of person who, now she's getting ready to affirm herself. I can't believe my luck. It's like gold, you know? I'm the type of person who, when I set my mind to something, I achieve it. And I said, wow, that's an incredible trait. Now I see why you're so confident. Could you give me an example of when you've been able to, to apply that? And she said, I will. So I want to be a doctor. So I'm pre-med. And the notoriously hardest course is organic chemistry. And I signed up for organic chem and I messed up and I signed up with the wrong professor 
And I found out after registration that I had signed up with the hardest professor. Everybody says he's the hardest professor. I don't understand the lectures. I'm really confused in class. And so that class meets on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And so I found out the other class with the other professor for organic chemistry meets on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So what I do is I go to my class on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I then go to the other class and just sit in the back on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I go to all the office hours for the professor who teaches on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I've convinced him to meet with me to help me because I'm stuck in the other course section, but I need to do well and I'm going to do well. And I brought my grade up from a C minus to an A. The reflections and affirmation, it, it writes itself. Obviously, the lengths that this young woman went to assure that she achieved something that was important to her in that example that she provided. It was profound. It was inspiring. And then to be able to link that back to her confidence that she could make this behavior change around a risky behavior, specifically cocaine use, it was really, really powerful. And she did end up kicking the cocaine habit and then circled back. And we worked through reducing harm around binge drinking and around cannabis use as well. So I just, you know, the power of affirmation, but taking it one step beyond looking for opportunities for affirmation and actually exploring for affirmations, I think is something that gets me really excited. You clearly take a great reward in, in other people's successes in those situations. And, you know, the curiosity that you have for your own growth uh, uh, is so clear. And, and as you described, the the muscle, what struck me was, again, you mentioned David Rosengren. When we spoke to David, he described the difference between fluency, which is, you know, you've heard a concept, you've read about it, you know the name and you can say it. And then the shift, which is what you're describing, is the development of the muscle to a place of mastery where you can do it, you can be that way with someone. And your willingness to allow yourself to be vulnerable during that process, to try new things, to have your thinking challenged by other people, all about your own development and then seeing the reward. And, and, I, and we're really grateful for your description of the readiness ruler there the, and just how the tool is used to elicit from the client their own reasons and their own efficacy for change. Again, a lovely description of how essentially that young person or that person talked themselves into a change that they needed to make and you bore witness to it. And in that, in that witnessing, their growth took place. So a lovely example and very rewarding work for yourself, but I also imagine for, for that, that student as well. And I, I really appreciate you sharing it with us. One last thing we asked our guests is, I guess there's a lot of people who have listened to you today and you've offered some great examples and mentioned some wonderful organizations that people may be curious about to find out more. If they were to want to have a conversation with you, Peter, would you be willing for them to reach out to you? And if they were, would they be able to reach you? I would love that, Glenn. And probably the easiest way for people to contact me would be through email. That email address is P as in Peter. R-I-V as in Victor, E-S at gmail.com. P Reeves at gmail.com. That's correct. And just on the contact, people can contact us on Twitter at Change Talking, Talking to Change on Facebook. Again, a great shout out and I really appreciate your feedback. And I know Maeve will be delighted. She does put an awful lot of effort into it on our Instagram account, which is Talking to Change Podcast. 
and then direct contact with myself and Seb. Our email is podcast at glenhines.com. While you guys were talking, I looked up that episode number just to be sure. The, the Rolnick episode, that was episode seven. So if anybody wants to just go directly to that after listening to Peter, then uh, that's where you go. Episode seven is a, a great episode with lots of information in there about affirmations and other things related to MI. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a, a great journey through not just your own path, but really taking a focus as well as a really broad look at the use of MI with college and university students. So, Peter, thanks so much. Thank you, guys. It's been an honor. Really appreciate it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.